Well, I'm very happy this morning to announce that Rich Brown's going to be joining us again. Uh, Rich has, uh, with his work on the session and some discussions he and I had, his love for this church and his church body is very evident, and we're grateful that you're willing to come up this morning and bring us God's word. Rich, thank you. Well, church, as Derek just said, it's such a pleasure to be here again with you all this morning. And uh, as I was thinking about um, just even what he was just saying as well, um, it really is not only a pleasure, but uh, I want you to know that all of us on the temporary session, myself and Derek and Frank and Mike Sherrod and Kyle included, uh, we all pray for you all so often. Uh, and really not even a day goes by, <laughs> in all honesty, that we don't think of and pray for you all. Uh, and so what a joy it is to be back with you all here again in person. And in many ways, as I was thinking about that same sentiment, as I was preparing this message, I thought, you know, what a deep sense of fulfillment it is to be able to be with you all in person. A sense of fulfillment. And I want to kind of hone in on that key word for a moment here with us, that idea of fulfillment. See, as you get to know me better uh, as I continue to preach here over the next few weeks or so, uh, especially in December, you'll probably find that even in my preaching, I tend to be a fairly nostalgic person. And you'll probably hear that come out in different stories or things of that nature. Uh, I tend to have a very deep fondness for time that is well spent. I tend to be somebody who loves quality time with other people, especially when that quality time is invested in the lives of other people and they grow as a result of it. And when I think back on very vivid and wonderful memories of years gone by, that word fulfillment always comes to mind. Fulfillment. Now, before we read our text this morning in Acts 2, verses 14 through 47, I wonder if you yourself can recall a time, even recently, when you felt that sense of fulfillment in your own life. Perhaps in recent years, the Lord provided for you gainful employment, where you found yourself working and using your abilities in such a way that you just felt satisfied. Or maybe you found yourself in new living conditions recently that allowed you to be in closer proximity to loved ones and friends alike. Perhaps you accomplished a great task and were honored uh, for your achievement and you felt fulfilled or satisfied. Perhaps after long years of investment, you are now finding yourself in a season of plenty. Well, whatever the case might be, there's something that is so sweet to us when our prayers as believers, the prayers that often begin something to the extent of, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, until you provide fill in the blank? are met by his own providential hand when we're fulfilled. And while we're certainly not promised tomorrow, nor are we wise to actually presume upon what may be, how things may materialize around us, uh, we know that when God fulfills his promises on his own terms to us, there's nothing sweeter in the world. And I believe we're going to see that here in our text this very morning as we approach it in Acts 2. But knowing, before we dive in, just a little bit of the context, knowing that I know you guys were going through the book of Joel the last few Sundays, I wondered as you were going through chapters 1 through 3 in particular, a sense of tension, though, of unfulfillment. <laughs> a sense of, in chapter 1, when the locusts came and they devoured all that was plentiful in the land, and the people were left with nothing and hunger and famine as a result, that they felt dissatisfied. Or by the very end of the book, when the coming of the day of the Lord was pronounced to them, you know, wrath against just, uh, judgment, rather, and just justice to be served, I wonder if you also recognize that tension, even in the book of Joel, where God's people might have been 
implicitly wondering, God, how long until you provide for us? How long until you actually fulfill what we are lacking? And the question arose in the book of Joel, well, how will God deal with sin? How would God make all things right when we're experiencing famine in our own lives, whether it be spiritual or physical famine alike? Well, nestled right in the very middle of the book of Joel, in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, is a promise. And it's a promise that is picked up again in Acts chapter 2, which we're about to dive into here. See, one day, the people of God would see, with their own eyes even, the Spirit of God being poured out on all flesh. And the direct result of that, as the church, was in many ways brought to age, so to speak, in light of the new covenant. See, one day the prayers of longing for God's fulfillment of the covenant of grace would be met chiefly and solely in Christ himself through redemption both accomplished and applied. See, Christ himself would fulfill the very promises of Joel, all the things that he was looking forward to. Christ himself would redeem his people. He would pour out his spirit to tend to the church in an age of spiritual famine and desolation as you then read later on in Acts and he would nourish his church his church until he returns at the final day and so at this time I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Acts 2 given the context as we now look at verses 14 through 47 in particular see Acts 2 14 through 47 they testify to such a magnificent fulfillment and so I'd like for us to hear the word of God which is given to us in love from Acts 2, 14 and following. Acts 2, verse 14 says this, and this is the word of God given to us. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes. That great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. And therefore my heart was glad, my tongue it rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. 
and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would one day set on uh, one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. Saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of God given to us in love. It is unchanging. It is forever true. And with that in mind, let's come before our God in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, that it is something that is so sweet, sweeter than the honeycomb even. God, we thank you that um, your word itself never returns void. And that as it is spoken and read aloud, it ministers to our hearts as believers. And even for unbelievers, it, it calls them to a point of decision. What will we do with this? Will we receive it or not? So God, I ask that as, as your people, we this very morning would be given ears to hear and eyes to see, that we would have hearts that are ready to receive the implanted word, and that it might bear fruit in time, O Lord, that as your word is expounded upon, as it is preached, would you let me simply get out of the way, and would you, by your very spirit, the very spirit of Christ, do the work in our hearts that needs to be done this very morning. God, use this time for your glory and for our good. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if I had to distill our uh, passage this morning down, which I realize is a very long passage, admittedly, but if I had to distill it down to only one word, it would be the word redemption. 
And if you're familiar with uh, one of my favorite theologians, John Murray, I definitely stole um, these two following points from him, you know, redemption accomplished and redemption applied. And I think we see that right here in our text, kind of two halves, so to speak, to this passage. In verses 14 through 36, we're going to see redemption accomplished as Peter brings the preached word of Christ to the people. But it doesn't stop there. We see it in application in verses 37 and following. And so we're going to examine this a little bit deeper, this redemption accomplished and redemption applied right here in this text. Uh, Brief little story for you, but um, I grew up, and I don't know about you guys, but I grew up uh, listening to Focus on the Family. And I don't know how popular that might be out here, but I I used to love listening almost every single night to one of their broadcasts called Adventures in Odyssey. And it was a wonderful, uh, (laughs) and I loved it, admittedly. I I would actually sneak in maybe one or two, maybe three episodes every night if I could, if my parents weren't paying attention. But I used to love listening to it because in Adventures in Odyssey, uh, the kids would actually go in this imagination station back in time to the biblical times, and they would see the biblical events playing out before their eyes as if it was real life. And they even interacted with some of the, the, uh, the people in history and, and spoke with them and got to hear kind of a firsthand witness of how things were going down. There was something that always appealed to me like that as a kid, and in many ways, um, I think it's appropriate for us to look at a narrative like this in Acts and try to picture ourselves here as well in the same way. We might not be kids going through the imagination station per se, but we are people who are looking at this narrative and understanding that it is real history, real time, and these things really happened. Um, Being an historian and being a lover of history myself, all things church history and American history alike, uh, I actually ended up working in an office at Liberty University uh, in the provost office and actually overseeing all of our domestic student travel. Uh, I ended up working before I got licensed and ordained as a pastor uh, for Liberty for about 10 years between a counseling office and the Center for Ministry Training and finally the provost office doing travel for the university. And in many ways, I got to take so many trips and yet there was one trip that stood above the rest by far. And it was the trip where I got to go to Israel and almost relive, as it were, some of those experiences and imaginations that I had dreamed up as a kid, listening to Adventures in Odyssey even. Back in 2016, I was blessed to to lead this trip to Israel where we took uh, 10 staff and faculty and about 60 college students to Israel. And one of my greatest memories of the trip itself, we were there for about 10 days, but one of the greatest memories was actually going to the old city of Jerusalem. Much of it had been around for, of course, thousands of years, and much of it still was a little dirty and, and even a little, uh, a little sketchy in certain corners, I'll just put it that way. <laughs> if you've ever been yourself, you'll know what I'm talking about. But um, our tour guide, though, knowing how unsafe it was, we knew that we couldn't really go to the, the city without it being just you know, kind of locked down and secured in advance. And so we finally, toward the very end of our trip, found our way to the old city of Jerusalem and actually gained access to uh, going to the temple itself. Of course, it's laid in ruins for almost 2,000 years, since AD 70. And yet at the same time, it was just this wonderful moment of, of expectation. It was building up within all of us. The 70 of us who were able to get, you know, this access to a place that most people in the world can't. And yet, when we walked around the Wailing Wall and walked through the quiet garden with only a few Uh, trees scattered throughout, 
our eyes as we pass by the corner were soon just eclipsed. Our sight was eclipsed by this magnificent and grandiose architecture. But it laid in ruins. It was this ancient place of worship, and yet all that were left were just these stones that had been heaved upward and, and brought up, uh, and these steps that were just laid to waste even. Now, as you can probably imagine, for all 70 of us, old and young alike, every single one of us who were there as we took in that sight all at once, were just silent. We were awestruck. What was once a place of worship unto the Lord had been destroyed, again, in AD 70, never to be rebuilt by human hands. And yet, as we know from Scripture, from Christ's own prophetic words, that the fulfillment of the temple was never about, ultimately, an actual physical building, but rather, the fulfillment was Christ himself, our temple. Christ, the very cornerstone, the prophets and the apostles laid as the foundation, and we ourselves, as members of Christ's church, as living stones, being built up by him and upon Christ alone. Christ himself laid the coursework for the church and is himself the edifice of the church. Now, one of my good friends uh, named Vince, uh, one of my old best friends back in the day, we were roommates and co-workers, and we were both on this trip together to Israel. And as we ascended the steps, what was left of them at least, we climbed up to the very top of the steps of the old Temple Mount. We just sat down and looked out amidst the entire, uh, what would have been a crowd thousands of years ago. We looked out and we saw this magnificent field and just the, the site itself and could just picture thousands of people being gathered around for worship. And both of us in that moment, being budding theologians and people who were involved in ministry in different ways, we couldn't help but just encourage each other. You know, this was not the end. This temple that was destroyed was not the end. You know, Christ himself is our temple. We, him, we ourselves are members of that and all of that, in many ways, was being fulfilled right here in Acts 2, when 120 of the apostles and the disciples of Christ were filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And as we know from Acts 2, 1 through 13, thousands soon heard in their own known language the annunciation of the gospel, that Christ had come in the flesh, that he had died, it was crucified, it was buried, and was raised for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, contextually, it's important for us to note that the multitude who had gathered around in Acts 2 to hear what was going on, you know, the commotion of all these known languages being shouted out all at once simultaneously, as they gathered around, they were men and women who were considered devout Jews and even proselytes, in other words, converts to the true faith. And they were not there alone, but they were there with their children. Both parties had gathered from around the established nations of the world. All of the nations under heaven, as Acts 2 earlier says. From Rome to Asia Minor to Arabia to the coastlands. All for the purpose of worshiping the one true God as one covenant people. They knew the word of God. They were well versed in it. They knew the law, the writings, the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament, and had trusted in God's faithfulness to them, knowing that just judgment for their sins was deserved, and yet trusting that one day their Redeemer who lived and who lives would one day walk upon the earth. They knew 
though they didn't know Christ himself pre his coming, they knew that Christ was already being revealed by promises, types, and sacrifices under the old covenant. And they knew that the seed of the woman would eventually come one day to crush and to bruise the serpent's head. Salvation would come, in fact, to the people of Israel by God's own hand. Salvation hand-delivered. And yet, how exactly would God satisfy the righteous demands of the law? In himself, that was still a mystery to them. But they were trusting people. They were devout again. But though they were, there was still that shadowy veil that existed for a time. Until right here in Acts 2, the shadowy veil was removed before their very eyes. See, testifying of the fulfilled promises of God, the apostle Peter lifted up his voice and boldly proclaimed to them an inauguration to end all inaugurations. I'm reminded of this truth from Galatians 4, 4 through 6, which I know that we were studying several weeks ago now, but Galatians 4, verse 4 says this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So what did Peter begin to proclaim to the devout Jews and the converts uh, and their children in Acts 2? Well, it was nothing less than Jesus was indeed who he proved he was, both Lord and Christ. And that was the sum of his entire message. Christ is both God, a very God, and the anointed one of Israel. He is God in the flesh, God with us, Emmanuel, the true and better Adam, the true temple, the only mediator of the covenant of grace. And he was speaking in such a way that the people might receive his words with gladness. I want us to do a little bit of an analysis, so to speak, because here in Acts 2, if you look with me at Acts 2, Peter alludes to both the prophets, but also the writings of the Old Testament, the Psalms, but also the prophets, so to speak. And Peter used this to address the people as first men of Judea and all of Jerusalem. In other words, the nation state of Israel, by and large, just simply those who are of this land, those who belong nationality-wise to this people group. But it's interesting because as he continues on, in verse 14, he starts with that sense of, uh, you know, you are men here who dwell here. He uses the Greek word andres, which can be a very generic form of address. You know, you men who live here, that kind of thing. But as you continue on into verse 22, notice what he says here, how he addresses them. He says, men of Israel. He changes his speech from men of Judea and Jerusalem to men of Israel. And at first glance, that might not sound like a big difference, but what is meant by that word Israel in so many ways is that he's conveying the covenantal promises of God to God's people. He's using this special name, Israel, God's people, as opposed to just people who are gathered here in this area, who are part of this nation state. In other words, to paraphrase what Peter is getting at, he essentially is saying, you who do not just live here as the visible nation of Israel, but you who are actually the spiritual seed of Abraham, the true children of the promise, you and your children, hear these words. Listen carefully to them. 
And then in verse 29, he even intensifies it more. He says, brothers, which we don't see in our English, but in the Greek, it literally says, men brothers. Andres Adelphoi, men who are brothers, women who are my sisters. He calls them by a, by a very personal name, saying, you know, essentially, the very core of my soul is urging you to hear what I am about to say to you. And he finally ends his address in verse 36 by saying, so therefore let all the house of Israel, the gathered people of God, therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. No wonder they were cut to the heart, so to speak, right? See, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, notwithstanding human responsibility, the nation of Israel had indeed crucified the Lord of life. But this most assuredly was all part of God's plan of salvation to fulfill all righteousness on behalf of his own people. The people who were being cut to the heart even here in this very moment. The eternal son of God, though crucified on our behalf, though killed by the hands of lawless men, could not be held down. The judgment for the sins of his people, Christ himself drank down to the very dregs, drinking the last drop of the wrath of God for his people. The work of redemption was indeed accomplished, and it was not possible for him, the very author and giver of life, therefore, to be held down by the pangs of death. How could the Lord of life be held down by death? So Christ arose from the dead, conquering over it and ascending on high to the very right hand of God, forever ruling and reigning as king with a rod of iron in one hand and a shepherd's staff in the other both our king and our shepherd. For the Holy One would not, nor could he, see corruption. The path of life himself could not meet a dead end. Just as was promised in Psalm 110, the exalted one had triumphed over his and our enemies. And the work of redemption had been accomplished in full. And that brings us to our second point for this morning. As we've touched upon redemption accomplished, now we're looking afresh at redemption applied in verses 37 through 47. See, at this point in our passage, you can probably see the turning point for yourself. In verses 14 through 36, it largely covered Peter's condensed sermon to the devout Jews and Gentiles who had long awaited the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And the signs and the wonders which Jesus had himself done in their midst, let alone his rising from the dead, proved beyond a shadow of a doubt his authority and lordship before them. And yet these very people who had seen Christ delivered up to the most horrific and shameful of deaths, they realized the magnitude of their responsibility. You know, what must we do now? What's our response? They cried out. It's interesting because in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 5, we see exactly the thoughts that they had going on. Isaiah, the prophet, foretold what these people were even thinking. <laughs> for, of course, the Lord himself is the one who inspired it. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 5 say this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And catch this, with his wounds we are healed. See, the men of Israel in Acts 2, they were cut to the heart at the realization of the fulfillment of all these things right before their eyes. 
Redemption had been accomplished, but how scandalous a thought that that redemption that they didn't earn or work toward at all could somehow be applied to them. And yet the glory of the cross is that all who look to it in faith, as we just sung about earlier, the wonderful cross, we who look to Christ himself as our only plea before a holy God are never empty or sent away from it. See, redemption was not only accomplished, it is certainly and effectually applied and communicated to all for whom Christ purchased it. Friends, it's here in verses 37 through 47 where we begin to see all of the benefits that Christ had secured for his church. For as simple as the gospel message itself is to understand, the implications instruct our daily lives and form us holistically speaking. Just like each one of us was raised in unique families and under the nature and nurture of our own uh, societal influences and things of that nature, we as believers are nurtured and natured, so to speak, by none other than Christ himself, our head. As individuals, this radically affects our lives. It roots our identity in Christ and Christ alone. Our spiritual DNA is essentially labeled with the word Christian before anything else and even in lieu of anything else that we could try to label ourselves with. We are in union with Christ, and therefore we are in communion with one another as members of the same body. Even our mission and our purpose, they're set forth by Christ alone and not our own personal agendas, no matter how noble they might be. And so as God's beloved, know that the promise of eternal life on the basis of Christ alone is for you. And hear that afresh. See, just as the early church was cut to the heart over the news of the cross, so we are right in responding to this news accordingly with a life of faith and repentance. We are recipients of the signs and seals of the covenant of grace, which continue to communicate those truths to us. Baptism and communion. The promise is to be proclaimed and the sign of of baptism administered to all who believe and to their children by virtue of that same covenant. Just like the early church, we are called likewise to save ourselves from the crookedness of the generation in which we find ourselves in. To be a holy people unto the Lord. Not that we can make ourselves holy or clean ourselves up in any way, but rather to recognize that we are set apart for the glory of God alone and ought to seek continuously to live as becomes a follower of Jesus. So I'd invite you again to hear the words of Acts 2, 42 through 47, And think about it, not just in terms of these immediate believers in this context, but for our own church as well. Acts 2, 42 through 47 says the following. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, earlier I mentioned being a fairly nostalgic person, somebody who thinks fondly back on memories, even as a kid going way back. 
and fittingly, according to the Myers-Briggs, I'm somewhere between an ESTJ and an ESFJ, for any of you who might be familiar with those personality tests. In other words, the ESTJ is usually the executive or the teacher kind of personality, and the ESFJ, more feeling-oriented, is kind of the counselor or the consoler, so to speak. Um, and I'm somewhere between the two of them. <laughs> the funny thing, though, about us teacher-counselor kind of people is that we tend to cherish very deeply moments and experiences that bring us to light and we tend to relive it in our own minds fairly often. See, as we read this last section from Acts 2, I can't help but also think of fond memories of years gone by. Whenever I read this passage, I am reminded of the sweetest of memories of Thanksgiving, which is coming up soon for us, of course, but gathering together with our family. And it looks different, even at my own stage of life, where all of my grandparents have passed on, and it looks different. But I still think back to those wonderful memories. And Christmas time is right around the corner too, and I'm sure a lot of us cherish those times and are anticipating them and looking forward to them. And I know a few of us are already starting to sing Christmas carols and songs, so I know a lot of us enjoy that season and the innocency of it. And what I see here in Acts 2, 42 through 47 is that same sense of innocency, but betwixt with unity. See, granted, these people experienced hardships and they would continue to do so as you continue to read through the book of Acts. But in this sweet moment, they were gathered as a people who were united in fellowship, soaking up the scriptures for days and months on end as they celebrated the Passover all the way to Pentecost and then beyond. They sat under sound preaching, the administration of the sacraments, baptism and communion, which are even alluded to right here in this text. They essentially had small groups, so to speak. They gathered together. They often shared meals together, and they prayed with one another and for one another, and every known need was being met. How picturesque is that? They were essentially living in the light of the gospel of Jesus, and it was incredibly and radically influencing their daily lives. And as a result, they had peace with their fellow man, unbelievers alike, the word there for men, you know, those with whom they had favor, is actually extremely generic, just all the people around them. In the Greek, it, it alludes to that. And so the Lord continued to bless them. And day by day, people were being saved and brought into the company of the church. Church, in application, do you realize that the Lord can most assuredly do the same thing within our own midst, even here at Christ's covenant? See, we too, as believers in Christ, have known his redemption. We, of course, are not oblivious to the sinfulness of sin in the world, and yet we have tasted and seen that Christ is forever good. We have seen Christ's redemption applied in our own lives as adopted sons and daughters of God. We've been justified by Christ, and we're being sanctified as continued works in progress, so to speak. But we will one day be glorified. So we must stand fast together. See, the good work which God has already begun in our midst, in our local church here, will not go on unattended. He is at hand, and his mighty hand, it still saves. So what would it look like for us here at Christ's Covenant Presbyterian Church to move forward with a sense of full confidence? What would it look like for us to be on mission within our own community here in Culpeper, Virginia? Well, I believe that our identity and our mission are very intentionally written right into the very name of our church. 
and they have been intentionally written there. Think of our name, Christ Covenant Presbyterian Church. I mean, as our name implies, Christ Covenant, we belong to Christ. We are his people. He alone is our savior. But we are also in covenant with him. And therefore, we live with a hopefulness that God will be faithful to us until the very end. We also, thirdly, are part of the Presbyterian Church in America, a denomination that is just continuing to grow and blow up in a good way as we have nearly 2,000 churches in the midst of our denomination all across North America now. Churches are being planted every single year. Even my hometown has seen an increase of, I think, 20 PCA churches just in the last 10 years in Seattle, Washington. It's amazing to be a part of this and on mission and with a sense of accountability with other PCA churches in our midst. But finally, we are also a church, the fourth name or fourth title in our name. And so as a church, we continue to gather on Sundays for worship as the Lord has commanded us in as much as we are able to. And I know the sensitivity of that given COVID, but we still make every effort as much as we can in our own ability to come and to worship together, for we need each other. We are equipped and we are fortified by the preached word when we are together to know afresh the undeserved favor of God. And so we're compelled to so love and serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So as we, can, as we conclude, I can't help but wonder, are you up for the task at hand? Individually, but even as a church, will we continue to devote ourselves all the more to the word of God and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers? My prayer for us is that in so doing, God may continue to be glorified in our church, our family here, and that his fame might spread throughout all of Culpeper and beyond. With that in mind, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the magnificent one, the holy one of Israel, the one come in the flesh. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have a sense of boldness and confidence in coming before your throne of grace because it's not of our own accord that we come. Rather, it is purely and simply because of your blood that speaks a better word for us. That says the word forgiveness over us. That says that we are pure and undefiled and cleaned. God, we thank you that we have a sense of boldness and access to your throne of grace so that whatever we bring before you, we know you hear. And we know that you love to hear the prayers of your saints. God, we know that these things are a burning incense before you, that they are a beautiful aroma unto you as we lift up our souls to you. So, Father, would you continue to use this time of worship this very morning and throughout the day to reassure us of such things, this beautiful communion that we share with Christ our Lord. And, God, would you nourish us as we now prepare ourselves to take part and the Lord's Supper together. So we pray all this in Christ's holy name alone. Amen.